In the holy name of Jesus, dear saints of God, what is it that you are looking for? You know, as you think about that question, it might be one of the more common questions that you and I are asked throughout our lives. It really doesn't matter what stage of life you're in. Somebody is asking you that question because you are pretty much, we all are constantly looking for something in our lives. It could be as simple as a set of car keys. It might be you wandering aimlessly down the grocery aisle trying to find what it is that your wife sent you there for. It could be something big like a house or a spouse. It could be something online, you getting lost down some rabbit hole on Google or you just scrolling through all of the deals on Amazon. What are you looking for? As common and as regular as that question is in our day-to-day -day lives, I think it takes a little bit different and maybe even more of a, a meaningful approach when it comes to this specific time of year. What are you looking for this Christmas? I know, that sounds like a really cliche question. But there's a reason that cliche questions become cliche. Because they tend to be pretty important. And again, it might be something simple like trying to find the perfect present for your spouse or for your children. But the older you get, it it tends to be, I'm looking for the things that money can't buy. I'm looking for peace in my family. I'm looking for stability in my job. I'm, I'm looking for healing, for whatever it is that's ailing you at the moment. I, I'm looking for relief and comfort in my marriage, I'm looking for some sort of hope that things will get better. What are you looking for? That, that's a pretty practical and a pretty important question. But I think it's also good for us to remember that that is a very biblical question. What are you looking for? That is the question that was peppered throughout our gospel reading this morning in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus asks the crowd that question three different times. What is it that you went out in the wilderness to look for? And the reason that Jesus asks that question is because that is maybe the question that summarizes all of the Old Testament. Because it is the question that summarizes all of the Old Testament prophecy and preaching. Open up your Bible, starting there in Genesis chapter 3, and going all the way through to the very end of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4, and there it is. Promise after promise, prophecy after prophecy, the Messiah is coming. He is the one you should be looking for. And so that was the message, prophet after prophet. The Messiah is coming, the long-expected one, 
the desire of nations, the King of kings, Emmanuel, God with us, the one who will be born of a virgin in the little town of Bethlehem, the son of David, the one who will be a prophet like Moses, the seed of Abraham who will bless all people, the lion of Judah, the king who will sit on David's everlasting throne. Time and time again, this is the one you should be looking for. He is the one who will take up our infirmities and carry our sorrows. He is the one who will be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities that because of his suffering, you and I will be at peace with God. That was the message. The message of all of the prophets and they all pointed to Jesus pointed to the forgiveness of sins that Jesus would bring. But many of those prophets also said that Jesus would not come alone. Prophets like Isaiah and Malachi said that there would be another, a forerunner, one who would come before the Christ, who would raise up the valleys and who would plow down the mountains, who would make a highway for our God. The one who would be a voice calling out in the wilderness, make straight paths for him. John the Baptist was that voice. We've been listening to him now for two straight Sundays. And he's one of those individuals that I think, when it comes to what are the scripture portions of scripture that you and I hear on a regular here on Sunday morning, John the Baptist is one of those that I don't think gets enough airtime. We really only hear about him this time of year in Advent, and then maybe on one Sunday coming up in the season of Epiphany after Christmas. But that's it. But of course, I think there's a reason for that. It's to remind us that John is not the one. John only came to point to the one. And yet what, do, what we do hear about John is fascinating. From even before John was born, it's a captivating story. An angel comes to John's parents, Zachariah and Elizabeth, they're way too old to be having children. They've had none so far. Elizabeth is barren and incapable of having children. And the angel says, you're going to have a son. And Zechariah laughs and he says, sure. And the angel says, here's the sign that I'm telling you the truth. You won't be able to talk until he's born. And so for nine months, Zechariah the priest is silent. And then a couple months later, Mary, pregnant with Jesus, comes to visit Elizabeth, pregnant with John, and the scriptures tell us that at just the sound of Mary's voice, John leaps in the womb of his mother. The recognition and acknowledgement that even before he was born, he knew that he was in the presence of the One. This is the Messiah the one who was to come. Then there's that unforgettable scene 
down at the Jordan River where John is baptizing repentant sinner after repentant sinner and then Jesus shows up. And Jesus says, John, I want you to baptize me too. And John says, Jesus, not a chance. I need to be baptized by you. And you come and ask to be baptized by me. And Jesus compels him and John does it. And after John baptizes him, John gets to see the Holy Spirit descend down in the form of a dove hovering over Jesus. And as the heavens are open, he hears that voice. This is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. John saw it and he heard it. This is the one. This is the one who will be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John saw it, and he heard it, and then he preached it. John points to Jesus. This, this is the long-expected one. The Messiah has come. He is the scapegoat. He is the Passover Lamb. He is the Lamb of God. The Messiah has come. You could say that all of these, the, the, these are John at his highest. The confidence that he was preaching with, baptizing, pointing to Jesus, he is the one. Follow him, believe in him, trust in him. You have in Jesus everything that you need, forgiveness, eternal life, and salvation. And how very different is that John from the John we encounter today in Matthew chapter 11. We don't see John the bold preacher or the fearless prophet. No, today we see John at maybe what we would say his all-time low. John is in prison for calling out the king, which history says doesn't normally end well for you. You see, King Herod had an affair with his brother's wife and then took her as his wife. And John, being the pastor, being the prophet, said to the king, repent. What you have done is wrong and it is sinful. And King Herod didn't like that. And so instead of repenting, he had John thrown in prison. And as much as King Herod didn't like John or his message, King Herod's former sister-in-law, now his second wife, really didn't like John and the message that he was preaching. And so she went to her husband and she made a request. I want you to give me the head of this man on a silver platter. And King Herod did it. That's where we find John today in that darkness, in that despair, in that doubt, filled with questions, John sends his disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you the one? Are you really the Messiah who was to come, the one that we all have been waiting for, or should we keep looking for someone else? Side note. Do you ever realize how many of God's people are put into prison in the scriptures? From Old Testament to New Testament, it doesn't really matter. 
Joseph was thrown in prison. Daniel spends a night in the lion's den. Here we have John. St. Peter is in prison, and it takes an angel to miraculously release him from prison. And then, of course, there's St. Paul, who just seems like he was going from one jail cell to the next. He's put into prison in Philippi, in Jerusalem, in Caesarea, and then in Rome at least once, probably twice. Even Jesus was put in chains. And if he had been granted the right of actually being given a normal trial, Jesus would have been put in prison too. And it's just kind of a reminder for us that this is the way the world works. That the way the world defines what is good and evil rarely lines up with what God's Word defines as being good and evil. And so there are things that God commands us to do that the government forbids us from doing, and vice versa. There are things that the government commands that we do that God's word forbids. And it's in these times that we must obey God rather than men and be willing to suffer the consequences, even prison, even losing our head. But to do this is obviously extremely difficult. To stand up and do the right thing no matter what. We're okay with, I don't want to say we're good with, but we understand when we are punished, when we suffer for doing things that are wrong, things that are bad, even things that the Bible would call sinful. But when we manage to do something that is good, something that is godly, something that God commands, we think to ourselves, this is when I should be praised. And we forget that it tends to be for Christians the other way around. You do a godly thing, and it is that thing that causes you all kinds of trouble. And this seems to be the source of John's struggle here. He was out there doing what God had prophesied he would be doing for hundreds of years. He was preaching repentance, law, and gospel. He was baptizing. He was faithfully carrying out his office as a prophet. He was pointing to Christ, and for all of this, he's thrown into prison. And Jesus has not come to rescue him. Did you know, as far as I can tell, that this is the only death recorded in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where the individual is not immediately raised back to life by Jesus? There's the daughter of Jairus, there's the widow's son at Nain, there's Lazarus, and of course there's Jesus himself. And then there's John, the greatest man ever born of a woman, is allowed to be left in prison, is allowed to be beheaded. Jesus lets John experience all this suffering for doing the right thing and to ultimately even die because of it. 
And so can you blame him? That John asks the question, Jesus, are you really the one? Are you really the Savior or should we keep looking? And there's always a debate here that pops up whenever you get to this text. Preachers and pastors and Bible scholars, and they wrestle with, is John really struggling here? Like, is he actually doubting? Or is he just simply kind of using it as an opportunity because he knows his days are numbered? He's using it as an opportunity just to send his disciples to follow Jesus. And I tend to think the answer is, as is regularly the case in Scripture, the answer is both. And I think it needs to be both. The problem here actually comes in when we tend to think that it can only be one or the other, and not just with John, that you either have genuine faith or you are a doubter. That you can't be both. But I'm convinced that John is experiencing genuine doubt here. He's wondering whether the things that he preached concerning Jesus are true, but as he fights with his own despair, he maintains faith that trusts in Jesus. This is why he sends his disciples to Jesus. And in doing so, John reveals himself to be a true Christian. In his doubts, John shows that he is a true Christian. And that is exceedingly comforting. Because sometimes I think we get this impression that the famous believers in the Bible were somehow blessed with this like superior faith. That God just said it and they believed it and they never questioned it and they never struggled with it and they never wondered and they never doubted. And so when we do, we think, what's wrong with my faith? Why hasn't God given me a faith like that? What's wrong with me? Why am I so weak? But you need to understand this, brothers and sisters, that being a Christian doesn't mean you have a faith that doesn't waver. Being a true Christian doesn't mean that you never doubt or fall into despair. No, being a Christian is having faith that fights against doubt and despair. It's having a faith that fights against the devil. Having a faith that fights against your own flesh, your own reason, your own unbelief. All of which dwell within us alongside our faith. Satan so wants you to stop believing in Jesus. He wants you to stop trusting God's word. He wants you to stop seeing Jesus as compassionate. And so he assaults your faith with doubts. So do you have doubts about all of this? So did your brother, John the Baptist. Do you have questions? So did your brother, John the Baptist. Do you wonder about the truth of the Scriptures or Jesus' love for you? So did John the Baptist. These doubts and these questions and these struggles, they come from different things and at different times in our lives, 
but I think more times than not, there is this common thread that probably weaves throughout all of them, and it's this. They come just like they did with John when we suffer. Jesus, if you are the Christ, then why am I in prison for preaching your name? And it strangely gives us comfort to know that when we ask similar questions, we do not ask them alone. Jesus, if you really are in charge, then why am I still sick? Why am I poor? I work harder than anyone I know. Jesus, if you really are in charge, then why am I constantly in struggle? If you are in charge, then why are the things in this world, and specifically in my life, so terrible? Lord, if you are in charge, then why does it feel like I'm all alone? Why does it feel like every day I'm constantly being pressed down on more and more and more? Jesus explained all of this, of course, very briefly in his parable of the sower and the seed. You remember that? One of Jesus' most famous parables. The, the picture of the sower casting the seed is the, the picture of the preacher casting out the seed of the gospel, and it falls out onto all different kinds of soil. And one of those soils was the rocky soil. And that faith, it sprung up quickly, but because it did not have root, it was scorched by the sun, and it just as quickly began to wither. And Jesus says that scorching sun are all of the troubles in this life. It is the persecution that comes for being a Christian. It is the doubt that assaults you on a daily basis. So instead of reading the Bible like it is this museum of people whose faith far exceeds your own, take a look at it again, and what you'll start to notice is that these people share your struggles. You'll quickly learn that their faith does not look all that different than yours. There's comfort in knowing that you're not alone in your struggles, that no temptation has seized you that is not common to all Christians. But there's an even greater point in this text. And I think this is why the answer to what is John doing here? Is he legitimately struggling and doubting or is he simply wanting his disciples to go and follow Jesus? This is why the answer is both. John not only gives us the comfort of knowing that we don't struggle alone, he also gives us wisdom. Because what does John do when his faith is attacked? Where does John look for answers to his very real questions? Look at what he does in his distress. Look at how he responds. He sends his disciples and his questions to Jesus. He doesn't look deep within himself to try and determine whether or not he really actually believes in Jesus this time. He doesn't have to go back and look throughout his past to see, did I really mean it when I said that I would follow Jesus? 
He doesn't start looking for some rational explanation. No. And he doesn't, and I think maybe this one is the most important one for us. John does not look at the external circumstances of his life to determine what is real, what is true. And that's what we're constantly doing, aren't we? We might even say that this is sort of our default as human beings when it comes to determining what is real in this life. If life is good, then God is real, and God loves me. And if life is not, then God maybe hates me, or maybe doesn't even exist. And so, John, what does he do? He tells his disciples, go ask Jesus my question, and whatever Jesus says, that is what I will believe. This is true godly wisdom. That when we struggle and doubt, and when we have questions, we don't turn to our own resources, our own reason, our own devices, but we turn to Jesus. And did you notice what Jesus sent John's disciples back with? He does not send them back with a simple yes or no. Maybe that's what John was hoping for. Maybe that's what you and I are hoping for. Just a simple, plain, flat-out answer. But Jesus actually gives them something better. He sends them with the word of God. Tell John what you have seen and heard. Remind him of all of the prophecies that I am fulfilling. Tell him about how the blind are being given sight and how the deaf hear, that the lame are walking and the sick are being cured and that the dead are being raised. Jesus points to the Word of God because it is through the Word of God and the Holy Spirit working through it that actually gives and strengthens and sustains weak and doubting faith. Faith that comes from hearing the message. And the message that is heard through the word of Christ. So what about us? What do we do when the devil assaults our faith? What do we do when we have doubts? What do we do in the midst of our struggles? We turn to the exact same word. We come to God's house and we hear the gospel preached, and we find in that word and in that preaching, Jesus. And in that word and in that preaching, Jesus finds you. And he stands up to fight back against your doubts. Not primarily with arguments, but with promises. He comes to us and reminds us of his love, he comes to us and he comforts us with his forgiveness. He tells us that he came to seek and save not the super believers, but the weak and the lost and the wandering and the straying. That he came to be the savior of sinners. That he came to deliver those who are walking in darkness. That he came to rescue those who are held captive by fear and faith, real faith, your faith, comes from hearing that. Hearing the promises of Jesus 
strengthens your faith to fight against your doubt. You know, we're not told what happens next. But I think there's good reason to think that John's disciples did exactly what Jesus told them to do. That they went back and they shared with John exactly what Jesus had said. And the disciples became the preachers. And John, the preacher, became the disciple. And the disciple John was given comfort. Comfort and confidence to face his own death. That yes, Jesus is the Messiah who was to come. That Jesus is the Savior, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. To know that what John had preached was in fact the truth. So it was for John. So it is for you, brothers and sisters. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus says. We all have pain and suffering. We all struggle and wrestle with sin and despair. And we will all day, all one day, die. But take heart, Jesus continued. I have overcome the world. And he has. And it, isn't that what we're ultimately looking for? We are looking for the confidence and the comfort and the certainty to face whatever might come in this life. The confidence to live another day and the confidence to die. And if that's what you're looking for, friends, and you should be, look no further. Jesus is who he says he is. He is your Savior. He is your Redeemer. He is your resurrection and your life. He is your friend. The Christ has come. The blind see. The deaf hear. The sick are cured and the dead are raised and you are saved. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.